The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and this is The Current Podcast. Alan Payne was out running errands in the small town in Ontario where he lived. The 90-year-old retired engineer had driven his beat-up old Ford Taurus to get groceries and then got in line at the bank. But standing in that line, his body began to wobble, and he fell to the floor. This was in May of 2022, and it was the beginning of a long odyssey through the healthcare system from the ER to a rehab hospital to a long-term care home. He eventually died last July. One of his daughters, Elizabeth Payne, also happens to be a health reporter at the Ottawa Citizen, and she decided to tell her dad's story. Liz is in our Ottawa studio. Liz, good morning. Morning. Tell me about your dad. What was he like? Uh, My dad was uh, a character in some ways. He had very firm beliefs about many things. He was a very proud engineer, um, and he had four daughters and really hoped we'd all become engineers. Unfortunately for him, I became a journalist. (laughs) Um, And uh, his work helped him to travel around the world. Um, He and my mom lived in Indonesia for a while, in Venezuela for a while, He was a bit of a workaholic, I think, and when he retired, I believe he transferred that in some some ways to to exercise and being active. And he always had been active, but especially it became a bit of a commitment for him as he got older and still played hockey into his 80s, uh, rode his bike around. Tell me about the photo that you have, and I gather your siblings have it as well, of of, on your fridge of, of your dad and your mom. Yeah, and my cousins as well. Yeah. Lots of people have it on their fridge. They're on bikes. Uh, it was the day of a uh, the opening of these rail trails that have turned into bike trails, you know, around uh, around the country. I think, um, but they happened to be out on what they would routinely do was like a thirty to forty kilometer ride, and there they were, and they were the first ones to use it. So the newspaper took a picture of them, um, and uh, we've kept that up as sort of an inspiration to all of us for what you can do as you age. Tell me what happened to your dad that day. As I mentioned, he was out uh, driving around doing errands, and then he went to the bank. What what, what went on there? Yeah, that was, uh, I think, as I wrote, one of his favorite stops, and uh, so <laughs> they knew him pretty well. Um, but yeah, he was standing, and he, he fell. Um, I think later we learned in hospital there were some reasons behind that, but he fell, and um, they called an ambulance for him. Um, they hurt his arm. The emergency department in his small town in Ontario had been closed a few years earlier, uh, so his nearest hospital was 30 kilometers away. Ended up in emergency um, on, you know, a, a stretcher in a queue um, where there were other people waiting to get in. It was a busy, busy emergency, busy hospital. You wrote in the piece that you thought you understood the healthcare system, but you didn't really until your father fell. What did you mean by that? Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I mean, you know, I had been going back and forth visiting him before he was in hospital. I'd been uh, covering the pandemic. I was bathing in these stories about the health system. There was so much going on, the shortages of nurses, the outbreaks. 
when my dad got into the hospital, it kind of clicked that suddenly I had been seeing these things as independent incidents that were happening and they were bad. And what I wasn't seeing was the continuum. I mean, I had been looking at the macro picture and with my dad, I saw the micro picture and what a difference it was making to individuals like him. And there were so many of them. Mm. So he arrives in a busy hospital. He's had this fall. His arm is injured. It turns out that he's broken his arm. Why didn't they just put him in a cast and send him home? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Um, he, it was an upper arm, so they couldn't cast it. Um, but they weren't going to do surgery or anything else. It didn't seem that serious. It didn't seem that he'd hurt his head. Uh, but he had low, um, very scarily low heart rate, um, which probably contributed to his fall. Um, so they wanted to put a pacemaker in. So that begun to slow things down. Uh, but prior to that, my dad had been waiting, had been on a gurney, um, was initially sort of, you know, pumped up and excited, got into this cubicle in this really very busy, um, not very comfortable emergency department and started almost very quickly showing signs of delusion Um which wasn't my dad, um, and is trying to escape. And so he's strapped down to a bed. He's there concerned that he has dementia, which he doesn't. The cascade kind of began there. You say that um, the minute your father entered the hospital, the clock began to tick. Yeah. And and I... I Did you see that? Did you have a sense, I mean, of things changing? Because you arrive to, to see him, and he's kind of on that gurney, and you ask you know, when he's going to be put into a room, and they say this is the room in some ways. Yeah, it's an old hospital, very old, uh, very crowded, lots going on there, lots of police stationed outside these cubicles, uh, lots of people in pain, lots of noise, and he was there right under the bright lights with a couple of curtains, not even walls around him. That was his room. It was the best they could do. He could see straight down the hallway. The clock was ticking, you know, as I know now how quickly that happens to the elderly in terms of losing muscle mass and ability to be mobile. In terms of his mental state, he was starting to kind of destabilize. You know, he I describe in the story him suddenly looking down the hall and seeing planes landing, which, you know, was not, was not the man who had gone into the hospital. So. How long was he on that gurney in the room that wasn't a room? It was for a number of days. Mm. I'm trying to remember. It was certainly for a couple, number of days. And they said, look, we'll get him into a real room where people could sit and, and they couldn't there. So, so, yeah, he had gone from emergency, emergency to this kind of room in emergency uh, for a good you know, handful of days, at least. This matters in part because, as you said, the clock is ticking. And you write that, I didn't know this, for every day that an older person spends lying in bed, it takes a couple of days to recover the strength and, and the function that's been lost. Yes, that's right. And, um, and everybody loses muscle mass when they're not moving. I mean, anyone who's gone through a bad flu will recognize, you know, the weakness that comes afterwards. But among the elderly who are already much lower on muscle mass and already more precarious for mobility, it's a big deal. Eventually, he is put into a room. Um, what did you see when it came to his condition there? He's moved out of, out of that hallway. 
he's moved out of the hallway. He's put in a room. Um, his he's in and out of these delusions. Um, he is not incontinent, but the minute he gets into the hospital, he's diapered. That's you know because they're afraid of him falling. They couldn't. They're trying to figure out a walker he could use with one arm, but he couldn't. So sorry, did they. They diapered him because they were worried that if he tried to go to a washroom, he would fall again. Yes. Yeah. And what, what did that mean for him? Well, I mean, it was all part of the, you know, it was all part of what happens to you that was was contributing to this this mental state of his. I mean, it's just it's just a whole series of indignities, and and that's you know that's among them. In part because, I mean, he essentially, like, he, he he was able to walk when he came into the hospital. He was able to walk, yeah. How long was he in the hospital for before he was moved? About two-ish months in the hospital before moving to rehab. It took a while to get him in the rehab center, and then he went there. And he was there for about four months, right? Yeah. What happened to your father's health when he was in rehab? Well... <laughs> We were thrilled he was going to rehab. That seemed exactly right and exactly what he needed. He needed to get moving and get out. Rehab wasn't, it didn't work out for him. Um, he had experienced some outbreaks of COVID. There were more when he got to the rehab center. They would get them up for an hour a day. Um, and then the people living there, many of whom were mobile, could move around in wheelchairs, but Dad couldn't easily do that um, without more rehab. And if you didn't, if you weren't in your chair when they were ready for you, they didn't have the staff, and they didn't have the patients, and they pro they didn't have the resources to deal with it. So many days, my dad and men like him wouldn't get any rehab. With every sort of every day, his condition got worse and it got harder for him to do anything about it. And then he got COVID. So that just kind of threw things for a loop. You, you say that by the time he arrived at the rehab hospital, he'd lost much of his strength and his mobility. Over the course of those th four months, what was going on? He was quite angry. He um, wanted to get out. Um, he did you know, when he did get to move, it helped. Um, but he was also developing pressure ulcers, which made everything harder, made being in a wheelchair harder. Um, and he was in a room with four men, mm. which at first I thought, goodness. <laughs> but that turned out, I think, to be actually one of the bright spots of his journey <laughs> through the system. You mentioned the, the, the pressure sores and the bed sores in particular. Tell me a little bit about about that. I mean, it's it's really hard to read this, um, but it, it, just explain when you are not able to get out of bed and you're not moving as much as perhaps you should be, what happens and what happened to him? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew some of this after the fact, but uh, the elderly have very thin skin, as anybody will know who've spent time around older people or who is older. Um, so it, you know, it, it can, you can develop sores more easily um, and it doesn't take long for the skin to start to break down for someone who's not moving very quickly. In fact, um, in my dad's case, he had several and it, they, they just got worse. He had, you know, special mattresses, but it was excruciatingly painful for him. And he, he couldn't sit in a chair for very long. Right? By the end, he couldn't sit in a chair. 
and it's something he got to the point where he had stage four bed sores, which what does that mean? It means this isn't a sore of the skin. This is a sore that goes below that level into the muscle, into the bone sometime. Of course, you know, a huge potential source of infection. Can you fix it? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, can it kill you? You can certainly die with it, and so my dad did. But, yeah, it's um, it, there's really no going back from there. And that comes specifically from, again, not moving enough. Yes, exactly. Which you could, I mean, you're not blaming individuals, but that could go back to the lack of staff, people being short-staffed and not having enough hands, essentially, to move people. People being short-staffed and it not being a priority. You mentioned that he was in a room with other men, and you write in this piece that they were reluctant companions, but they shared dreams. What were they dreaming about? Yeah, it. Uh, these men broke my heart, actually. They, they dreamed about being somewhere else, and they were... You know, I actually learned a lot just from sitting in that room with them. Um, they they learned how to cope with what they could control, which wasn't much at that point in their life. There was one gentleman who really he didn't seem that elderly, and he talked a lot to family and to people in the room about this long-term care home he would go to, and it was great. It was close to family. It was supposed to be really nice, and he was really looking forward to it. Um, and one day, you know, and they again had these thin, these these thin curtains they could pull around their beds, and he was face down on his bed, you know, like a teenager, just quietly sobbing to himself for most of the day. It was it just broke my heart, and he he got accepted, but not into that home. It was somewhere else. It wasn't close. It wasn't as nice. And he he sat bravely up and said. Uh, I know I don't sound happy about it, but I really am, and you know, and sort of tried to make his best about of the situation. There was another man who um, one day he kind of he regaled people with his stories about living in uh, Wyoming, uh, where he worked for a while in the mountains, and it was clear that's what he was dreaming about. And that man died in his bed not too long after that, leaving, you know, some of his, his roommates to call for help, actually. It was, uh, they, they were a heartbreaking, lovely, <laughs> lovely group. I found that almost the saddest part of the story. This, this, the, these four men, um, or a group of men in, in this room who are at, at, at the end of their lives and have these ideas of where they want to be, these dreams of where they want to be, and they can't be there, that they're stuck in this place. Yeah, I did too. Uh, there were times I had to go in the hallway. I, I found it, it just, it broke my heart, but it also, like I was inspired by their abilities to to make what they could of this, you know, the situation they were in. Your father finally ended up in long-term care um, and he was in this long-term care home for the last seven months of his life. This is a, a home that you write that he, he used to make bitter jokes about. Yeah, that used to be his, well, I'll just go there uh, joke. Um, you know, we'd drive by it. It was across from the church. It was on familiar routes in town. Um, but when we got there, actually, it was a municipally run long-term care home. And I know there's been lots and lots of research and investigation done into long-term care post uh, pan the you know first years of the pandemic. 
<clears throat> when we got there, uh, this actually was a lovely place. It's 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 not where my dad would have wanted to be. Obviously, he would have wanted to be at home, but it had things that really helped. It had, you know, privacy. It had light. It had trees with birds outside the window. It had music and people, um, but he wasn't. He was in palliative care when he arrived there and uh, until his death. You know. Why did you want to write this? It's a really, I mean, there will be people who will see themselves in this story and see their family members in this story. But there are also people who this is what they fear as they get older, that they'll end up living through, as you said, these indignities um, that, that, that you describe. Why did you want to write the story? It just initially hit me like a bolt of lightning when I was like, you know, popping between my dad's house where I was actually working and writing stories and to visit him that I, my worlds had completely collided. Um, and I was watching him live through what I was writing about. And it just seemed like something I had to write about. And for him, but for everybody else, uh, you know, for me, kind of post having written it, what's so striking about it is that it is such a common story. It's not, it's not unusual. It's not this huge thing that happened. It's just a common, common story. You go into the emergency department anywhere and you will see these people coming in similar to my dad with similar stories. Did it help in writing it, given um, what you've gone through? <laughs> in some ways. Right. I mean, it, 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 the response to it, surprised me and overwhelmed me, actually. And I think, yeah, I think writing it helped me understand it. Mm. Um, certainly, the response to it has been pretty emotional for me, actually. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Listening to our conversation has been Dr. Samir Sinha, who is Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health and the University Health Network. He's with me in our studio. Good morning to you. Good morning. Liz talks about this as a common story. How common is, is, is a story like this? It's all too common. You know, increasingly as we have our aging population, we're seeing more and more of, of, of patients like Liz's dad. You know, as a young medical student, I was being trained in all of this and just knew that this needed to be different and, and that we needed to do a better job of caring for older adults. Can we talk about, I mean, the, the, the piece is titled The Fall. Let's begin with a fall and how that changes a senior's life. I mean, we know this intellectually, um, but what, what goes on when, when an older person falls that can lead to this cascading effect? Well, the number one thing that older people actually fear, believe it or not, is the fall. Uh, because 
one in three older adults uh, will fall in a given year, but it's a certain percentage of those falls, about one in five, that might have more serious injury. You might, you know, break the skin, have a cut. You might have, uh, worst case, you know, a hip fracture or, or, or some other form of fracturing. And it's the number one reason why older adults will be admitted to hospitals with trauma. It's trauma from a simple fall. But what sounds like a simple fall, again, in a person who's frail, um, it takes, it's a harder opportunity to heal. You might already have existing mobility or other cognitive concerns as well. It just makes it much harder to recover from that. And in Liz's dad's case, for example, here was a guy, as I understand, who was living independently on his own. He didn't have a whole care network and uh, immediately. And, and this is kind of some of the additional reasons why these folks end up not being able to leave the emergency department. We're going to admit you to that cubicle because we don't actually have a system in the community that can adequately meet your needs in that case. Um, and, and, and it may not be possible for your family to also meet that level of need that instantly happens for you when you have a fall like this. Um, we were talking about that spiral that happens when people like Liz's dad get admitted to hospital. And in his case, this all started with him lying on a gurney in the ER for several days. How does something like that affect patients? So when, when we talk about a stretcher or a gurney in an emergency department, we have that simple, um, that simple bed form because emergency departments are supposed to have people in and out within a four to five hour period. So weren't, they weren't built to have people living in them literally for days. And, you know, the stat that I always like to give people is that when you're sitting on a gurney, when you're laying down on a gurney, especially as an older person, for longer than eight hours, and Liz said that her dad was on that gurney for days, you just, with, after about eight hours, that skin, that delicate skin for an old person starts to show signs of injury. And that can be the nidus, the, the opportunity for that skin breakdown to occur, that pressure injury, which can turn into a pressure ulcer. And so, and it's those additional things that, oh, we're short staffed, you know, we're going to put a catheter in you that'll help you pee. Uh, we'll put an IV in you so, because it's too hard to bring you a glass of water and get you to drink. So, and those become single point restraints. So all of a sudden, you're now laying back on a thin mattress. You're staring up at bright lights. That's It's a form of torture, to be honest. And all of a sudden, what Liz was calling delusions, it's actually what we call delirium, which is called an acute confusional state. Mm. That's deadly. You then are losing your mobility. And then it just becomes an immediate downward spiral that's completely preventable, you know, if we didn't keep people flat for prolonged periods of time. What does that do to their physical or their, their mental health? We know it's what's going on with their physical health. But I mean, again, Liz talked about Alan's motivation plummeting. You want to get out, but then you can't. You've walked into this hospital and now you're in a bed with a catheter wearing a diaper. What does that do to your mood, which could lead to other complications? Yeah, so it's... We, we talk about this concept of medical demoralization, the idea that here's a guy who was just at the bank, you know, just, just shortly before he arrived Drove here, himself to the bank. Drove himself to the bank. And then all of a sudden now you're being told, you know, uh, Mr. Payne, you know, it might be, you know, we don't have the staff right now to take you to the washroom because, you know, putting someone in a diaper, like who wants to be put in a diaper and be told just do it, you know, in, in the diaper? I mean, how, you know, that is so demoralizing for someone who was driving himself to the bank only a few days before. And so it's, we call that medical demoralization. We know that about a quarter of older people in hospital 
hospital um, showed dep- signs of depression. Um, and, you know, this band of brothers, you know, that we heard about that, um, you know, that Liz's dad was one of them, you know, here they are just trying to make through these indignities. But the idea that you're seeing your physical health decline. Um, you've been experiencing episodes of delirium, that acute confusion. Um, and then, and you're cognitively with it enough to know that it's not getting better. It's mm. just getting worse. Um, that can be incredibly demoralizing and it can make people easily just want to give up. Tell me about the strategy that you've employed at your hospital, this ACE strategy to try to move people through a system in some ways, but also make sure that, you know, how they're being treated uh, meets their needs. Absolutely. It's just recognizing that that when we think about our, our current healthcare system today, it was really developed for 27-year-olds, not 72-year-olds, because that's the average age of a Canadian when we established Medicare over 50 years ago. The challenge is that now about 60% of our hospital bed days are occupied by older people like, you know, um, Liz's dad. And so when we have a system that actually is not intending to cause harm, but inadvertently causes harm. This is this is the challenge that we need to address. We need to make our hospitals what I like to call elder friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to make sure that the processes, even the physical environments that we create, how we engineer that care is geared towards better meeting the needs. And so we developed what we call our ACE strategy, our acute care for elders strategy. Um, And this wasn't just me. This was a whole team of nurses, doctors, social workers, everybody coming together to look at stories like Liz's dad and saying, what were all the missed opportunities there that if we did things a little bit differently, not radically different, just a little bit differently that we could do that. So for example, um, our new emergency department at Sinai, for example, we've designed spaces so that why did Liz's dad who had a broken arm, why did he need to even be laying down in the first place? He could have been sitting upright in a chair for most of that other than when he needed to sleep. Mm. That would preserve mobility. Um, we, we've actually significantly reduced the use of urinary catheters by 50% because he only needs to have a catheter if he doesn't want to go to the bathroom or we can't take him to the bathroom, otherwise we have no excuses to not mobilize him and get him there. So by simply re-engineering these processes to really promote mobility, to make sure that we're not doing things that restrict mobility, um, that we're trying to prevent delirium, these sorts of things, we've been able to shorten lengths of stay, decrease readmissions. We've cut the use of catheters and falls by falls up to 66%, pressure ulcers, pressure injuries by 94%, Matt. And we've actually been able to run a much more, offense, a much more um, effective um, hospital. And, and with that, we have less people needing to end up in long-term care, less people needing to go to rehab, more people going home, and it saves our system money. Can you do that if you are... If you don't have the resources, if you have people being pulled in 30 different directions? Well, in any short-staffed environment, can you do anything well? No. We didn't actually have to hire any extra staff to actually do um, our, our, um, our model. It just was about principally 
changing and re-engineering the way that we worked. It was about engaging volunteers and helping to also, for folks who didn't have family members and friends, to come and even support mobilization mm -hmm. or socialization so people just don't get demoralized simply having to talk to the wall. They'd have someone talk to. Um, I lied. I said not new staffing. We actually did get one increase in, in staffing. It was to have physiotherapy available on the weekend because mobility needs don't stop on weekends. So just these little things that we did were able to make an enormous difference, but you need to be adequately staffed. It, I mean, Liz is in a unique position in that she is a health reporter, so she knows the system. For people who come in with their loved one and they're worried, they hear the story and they're worried that the, the trajectory goes down, um, what's your advice to them? What are they supposed to do in the face of that? Should they be saying things? Should they be asking for things? What's your, the, people want to know what role they can play as, as advocates. Absolutely. So whenever I'm engaging with, with family members in situations like this or my patients themselves, you know, I talk to them about, have you heard that term, move it or lose it? And they're like, oh yeah, no, I have it. It matters most now. Mm. I want you up in your chair for all your meals. I want you walking to the bathroom. If you can actually, you know, put, take your arm and, and put it up to your mouth, you can drink a glass of water. You don't need an IV necessarily. I always tell family members, that chair is not for you. That chair is for your loved one. I want them up in the chair. And just little things, because families want to be engaged. And I really feel that in Liz's story with her sisters who were there, if they were given some of this coaching and some of this awareness, oh, you know, they would have probably been trying to walk dad around the emergency department, mm. you know, or doing what they could, doing their part, because families want to be helpful. Liz Payne, um, you've been listening to, to Samir talk about this. This is a really sad story, but I wonder it, when you realized that perhaps your father's decline wasn't inevitable, did you become angry? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I've read stories about doctors, for example, ending up in the hospital system and feeling sort of like deer in headlights. In a way, knowing the system was maybe not as helpful as it should have been. You still feel helpless and like a deer in headlights. And yes, I'm just listening to Samir and thinking, wow, if we had that coaching, um, absolutely. It was, you know, it was discouraged to get him up. He was on, he was hooked up to monitors and so forth. So it made it very tough, but, um, but that would make a huge difference in so many cases. Are we ready for what's coming? The stat is that by 2024, one in every four Canadians is going to be a senior. And so you said the healthcare system was designed for 27 year olds. Are we ready for what's, what's coming? Absolutely not. No. You know, I mean, I've dedicated my entire career as a geriatrician, one of only 400 in Canada and what the New York Times calls a rare and endangered species of physician, trying to, you know, call call this out, doing the research, showing, you know, the, 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 the spreadsheets that this saves money and it actually leaves us with a more efficient system. You know, the good news is, is, you know, we've shown that it can work at our organization. We've got others across the province and, and you know, Newfoundland's now implementing the strategy which is which is gratifying, but we've got thousands of hospitals, uh, you know, hundreds of hospitals across Canada, thousands of hospitals around the world, where this should not be a unique model of care. That it's a postcode lottery. You're lucky if you know the team was able to do. This should be the standard of care. 
we have so much inertia in a system that was designed to work well for 27-year-olds and getting people to re-engineer their thinking, recognizing that you're caring for not 27-year-olds, 72-year-olds. We need to change the way we do things. It's hard, especially when, if you go to a medical school in Ontario, geriatrics is not commonly taught, mm. believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Liz was saying, I wish we had a coach. She had all these people around her and her dad throughout the stay who should easily have had this knowledge and should have been saying it over and over and over to them again and doing it in their actions as well. Liz, just finally, you said that the response that you got to this piece um, was overwhelming. What kind of response have you received? Um, Response like to nothing else I have ever written, I have to say, just dozens and dozens of emails and messages through other other venues. Um, and many of them started by saying, I've never written to a journalist before. And so many of them um, told their stories, their families, often their parents' stories, which, you know, sometimes they were eerily similar, sometimes slightly different. Um, and And what was striking was several people said, thank you, this makes me feel less alone and less guilty. I think there's a lot of guilt. Um, I think there's a lot of unresolved grief out there. Um, I think this kind of tapped into some of that. What does that tell you about what the system needs to do to change? I mean, Samir says, we're not ready for this. Yeah, I think we're not ready for it. I think, I mean, I'm really struck by his 27 and 72-year-old. If you go into an emergency I flinch every time I hear a reference to these patients as if they shouldn't be there. They're not, they should be somewhere else. That's who's in the acute care system and they deserve care that will change their outcomes, will change the hospital's outcomes. Uh, As Samir says, it's doable. We know how to do it. That's the frustrating part. Thanks for writing this. It's a really powerful piece. And I can imagine the response that we'll get in talking to you will be similar to what you received after writing it. Liz, thank you. Thank you so much. And Samir, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Samir Sinha is Director of Geriatrics at Sinai Health and the University Health Network. Liz Payne is the health reporter with the Ottawa Citizen. One of the reasons why this story is so affecting and so powerful was because it's so familiar. Um, that, that idea of the fall and what happens in the wake of the fall and what the system is or is not designed to do for seniors who find themselves in that healthcare system. We would love to hear your stories of the fall and what happened after your experience in a healthcare system, as we said, that's designed for 27-year-olds, not 72-year-olds. And we would be delighted to hear from patients and their family members and loved ones, but also nurses and doctors who are part of that system. You can email us the current at cbc.ca, the current at cbc.ca, or you can send us a voice note on your phone and we'll play it on the radio, the current at cbc.ca. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.